Breaker Breaker 19. This is KFV 2338 coming with you, checking in, seeing how it's going down the road. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about CB Radio, the Clubhouse app, and what it means to go hunting the whales. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Akimbo's small business workshop is back. It's back because it works. Find out what you're missing. Find out how to work it better. Find out the path forward. Here's my friend Ramon Ray to tell you about it. In this workshop, you'll learn what you need to start and grow your business. Students have told us that the workshop helped them think and rethink their assumptions about small business success. Students said they no longer felt alone in growing their business. Listen, we know owning a business has a lot of challenges. And in the Small Business Workshop, we give you the framework to help you make the choices you need to make to overcome these challenges. I can't wait to see you in the Akimbo Small Business Workshop. Find out more at akimbo.com slash go. Hope to see you there. Yes, I still remember my CB license number, KFV2338. It's unclear why I needed a license to use a CB radio in 1973, but I did. And we installed one in my dad's car so that he could call me on his way home from work to tell me that he was on his way home from work. What I most remember about CB radios was Sunday night at Pat's Hot Dogs in Buffalo, New York. Sunday night at five o'clock, the people from Channel 19 would get together in person just to see what each other looked like. It wasn't really that pleasant an experience. People were better on the radio than they were in person. Well, fast forward 40 or 50 years, a pandemic, the internet, and now we have Clubhouse, the fastest growing app in recorded history that I know of, a social app online that only works with your iPhone that lets you join a chat room by audio. Now, one of the rules of Clubhouse, the same way it was a rule of CB Radio, is that the first rule of Clubhouse is that we always talk about Clubhouse. Yes, son. Better stay out of that hammer lane. Then parking lots like to move. They'll turn you into a speed bump. Then we'll be calling you a meat wagon. I'm not really going to do that today. What I want to talk about is something that I noticed when I first encountered it, a lesson about how ideas spread. I'm not that good at clubs. I'm not that good at clubhouses. I wasn't interested in joining a new social network. I also don't use an iPhone. So even if I wanted to, I'd have to go to a lot of trouble to take the iPad down where I use it as an alarm clock and teach it to get to clubhouse. And even then, I didn't have an invitation, so it wasn't even on my radar. And then within three days, I got not one, not two, not three, but four invitations from people to join Clubhouse, a closed community that you need an invitation to join. Two of them came from people I have an enormous amount of respect for. This got it on my radar. I went and I set up an account just to make sure my name was saved. And then I looked around, not interested, I left. One of the reasons I left is because they kept pushing me and pushing me to share my contacts. So let's go back in time just a little bit. Facebook grew so fast because it was able to pillage your contact list and instantly integrate you 
with lots and lots of people in your life. Pinterest was the fastest growing web service of its kind. And I know this because we were competing with them at Squidoo. They grew like a rocket because they hacked the Facebook API in a way that when you joined Pinterest, it instantly let all of your contacts know that you now had a page on Pinterest. That simple ratchet really changed their growth pattern. So I was hesitant to share my contacts with Clubhouse. But then my friend Chris invited me to do a thing with some people I also really respect. And so I had no choice. I pressed the button and I shared my contacts. And then I saw something that I thought was absolutely stunningly brilliant. Unclear whether it is manipulative, but it was brilliant. And that's what I want to share with you today. It explains why I got so many notes in such a short period of time. After you share your contacts on Clubhouse, what it does is it shows you a list of people who aren't currently using Clubhouse that you can invite, in my case, they gave me five invites, that you could invite to join Clubhouse. Now, here's the thing. That's been done before, but the twist is this. You only have five invites, and the list is sorted by how many people know the people who are on your list. So here's my friend, Michael. He has 438 people on Clubhouse who also have him in their contact list. 438. Now, I have a really interesting choice in front of me because two things motivate almost all humans. One, affiliation. Who's in? Who's out? Who's an insider? Who's part of something? Second, status roles. Who's up? Who's down? Who's moving up? Who's moving down? Those two things are the unspoken axes of many of the decisions we make in culture. They are what gets somebody who has enough money to go to work tomorrow because not moving up feels like moving down. Not being part of something feels like you're alone. So here's this list sorted from 438 down to seven. And I'm looking at this list and I'm saying a few things to myself. One thing I'm saying is, wow, I should let Michael know. I should let Michael know because he'll appreciate it. He'll appreciate the fact that I'm giving him a chance to join in with a bunch of people, 438, who are waiting for him. And part of me is saying, wow, my status is going to go up because I'm giving Michael something precious, one of my five invites. He'll appreciate me. Not only is my status going to go up with him, but he's my highest status friend. He has so much more status, so much more impact in the circles that I travel in than my friends who are down in the 10s and the 20s. And so if I'm going to use an invitation, I should use it on someone who A, will appreciate it more and B, where my status will go up the most because after all, I'm the guy who brought him in. And from Clubhouse's point of view, bringing in people who have that many friends, these folks are whales. They're the heavy users. They eat a ton of plankton. They're the ones that lots of people know and respect. So if people like us do things like this, which is the definition of culture, and Clubhouse figures out how to game the system so that the biggest spreaders, talkers, connectors, sneezers, respected people are the ones who are there early, they have figured out a ratchet, a network effect. They have figured out a cycle 
where more gets them more, where the people who are in it want more people like them to join. That the only reason that people are in Clubhouse is because other people are in Clubhouse. And so the cycle continues. I thought this was worth a riff or even a rant because it helps us understand how this idea of algorithmically driven cultural change works in so many elements of our lives. So if we think about the dynamics of the 1960s or 70s, sure, spend a lot of money to lobby people in Congress. There's a direct correlation between giving folks like that money and swaying their opinion. But what's happened as we've gotten better and better at analyzing the social graph, the digraphs, the connections, the points of influence, is we realize that might be the output, but the steps to get there aren't as direct as here's a bunch of money. It's the smallest viable audience. What's the group of people that if we could persuade them to go along with the way we think, they are more likely to persuade the others? That in the organization where you work, there are some whales. There are people who go to more meetings, write more memos, send more emails, are at the center of lots of connections. And that person is probably not the CEO. Who is that person? And who is that person looking to for advice? Who is that person surrounded by? As we start to dissect the graphs of what makes the media decide that something is the story of the day, what leads a community to back one thing or another, they're all about uneven groups of influence, influence that we might not easily be able to see from the outside. But people are looking. You know that they are looking. They're scouring for signals. The idea of our credit history is just the beginning. What we're doing as we work online is leaving a trail behind, a trail of what we took and what we gave, a trail of who we persuaded and who we were persuaded by. And all of this data is getting more and more concretized. All of this data is getting more clearly seen. And so people are going to use it unevenly to treat different people differently, to show up for people with influence, with circles, with networks, because it helps them get to the next spot. This is just the beginning. It's going to keep going. Now, you probably won't find me on Clubhouse very often, but I think we just learned a valuable lesson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a deep dive down the rabbit hole in answer to a listener question. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is the time to level up? When is the time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. 
As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. This question sounds pretty simple, but there's actually a lot going on. Here we go. Hello, Seth. Peter Cook here from Melbourne with a question on your recent episode on trademarks, copyrights, and patents. So I'm looking at a number of your books that I have here in my office. I pulled three down from the shelf and I've got another four sitting on my Kindle. And I notice if I look at Lynchpin, it says at the front, the moral right of the author has been asserted. The same thing in This Is Marketing, in The Practice, in Tribes. However, I notice in the in Poke the Box, and we're all weird, uh, not there, um, which are probably not coincidentally the ones that you published through the Domino Project rather than through Penguin and other publishers. So I've also written a few books and I have always asserted my moral right with, uh, with no idea what the, that actually means. And so my question is, firstly, what does that mean? What's the history of asserting one's moral right as an author? And secondly, is there any point to it at all? Does it make any difference at all in the context of trademarks, copyrights, patents, and doing great work? Thank you for everything you do. Big, big fan. So let's start with Damien Hurst. He's an artist, cutting edge out of the UK and has made a fortune selling paintings, some of which have colored dots on them. Well, there's a collective in Brooklyn that loves publicity called Mischief, and Mischief bought one of his dot paintings, cut it up into little tiny squares, and then sold each square for a few hundred bucks, turning a profit as they went. They were making a commentary about what is art anyway. And they were also violating Damien Hirst's moral rights. In the United States, they're not the same as they are in France or in England or in New Zealand or in Australia. It's different in a lot of places. But they even violated the VARA law, which added a level of moral rights to certain kinds of art in the United States about 30 years ago. So let's try to decode what moral rights are and how lawyers even think about intellectual property because lawyers are a superstitious bunch. At the end of every one of my audiobooks, because I have to read the script that the publisher has handed me, I have to say, and they'd like me to say it in all caps, all rights reserved. And every time I say it, I then add, of course, there's no need for me to say this because for more than 20 years after Nicaragua signed the Berne Convention along with the United States, and the Buenos Aires Convention became irrelevant, there is no legal reason whatsoever to say all rights reserved when you are reading an audiobook or printing anything. It doesn't mean anything. In all capital letters, it's just a way for a lawyer to say, I'm up on stuff. Don't copy this. But no, it has no legal bearing. So back to moral right. Moral right is the opposite of the first sale doctrine. The first sale doctrine came along because a book publisher, Bob's Merrill, put in all of the books it was printing, if this book 
was sold to you for less than a dollar, it constitutes copyright infringement. What they were trying to do was control what happened to their books after they sold them to a wholesaler or a retailer. And it turns out you're not allowed to do that. The same way if you make rubber balls or baby carriages, you can't say you can't sell this at a garage sale when you're done using it. Copyright creates a piece of property, but you can sell that property to someone because if you couldn't, then there would be no point in making it. And once you sell it, it's not yours anymore. It's theirs and they can resell it. They can do things with it. They own it. But the market being the market, profit seekers being profit seekers, things started to shift. And so beginning in Europe, they embraced the idea of Dwight Morale, the moral right. And what it says, primarily, almost certainly for visual art, you can't change this thing. That's integrity. And you have to give me credit for this thing. That's ownership or the idea of creation, unless I insist that I remain anonymous. Now, it's not always applied just to visual art. So Monty Python, yes, I've managed to work Monty Python into yet another episode of Akimbo, actually sued the ABC television network over this very issue. Why? Because when they wrote the scripts for the BBC, for Monty Python and the Holy Grail in the 60s, they were very careful about how they were constructed, how they were timed. And this is the Spanish Inquisition hiding behind the coal shed. Oh, I didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition. Well, the people at the BBC licensed it to Time Life. Time Life turned around and licensed it to ABC. And in each one of those licenses, they gave the new publisher-distributor network a chance to edit the work, to fit in commercials, to make it fit local standards. And so when ABC put together a 90-minute special of the best of Monty Python, Terry Gilliam and the rest of the troupe sued ABC. And I was amazed to discover that they won, that the court said, no, you can't do that because Monty Python has an underlying copyright in the entire structure of this show and you're not allowed to mess with it, first sale doctrine be damned. And so now we see the conflict. The conflict is that Andy Warhol took, for example, a Superman comic and made it into a work of art. Is that copyright infringement? Well, what happens if he buys a copy of Superman comics, cuts it out, and pastes it onto a canvas? Is he allowed to resell it? Is Marcel Duchamp allowed to paint a mustache on Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Well, one of the principles of moral right is that it only extends while the artist is alive. And so Marcel Duchamp is off the hook because da Vinci was dead by the time Duchamp started defacing his art. But should you be allowed to deface art, to make a commentary around it? Taken to its full extreme, moral rights even says that the artist can control who you sell the painting to when it is time to sell it. Or if you hire an artist to put a fresco on the wall of your bank's conference room, the artist, while alive, can say, you may not take that down. You may not renovate this building because I have a moral right and you cannot control it. 
So the short answer to your question is it means absolutely nothing when Penguin writes, the artist asserts moral rights. Nothing. There is nothing in the statute anywhere in the world that says that the artist has to claim it. In addition, built into moral rights is you may not sell them. You cannot give them away. They are there. Because the argument was made that if you could sell them, then they wouldn't be worth any more than the copyright itself. That what legislators were trying to do is treat copyright creation as something separate from the creation of other sorts of property. So I'm of two minds here. I think that the economic underpinning of what we create enables us to get paid to create it. And if artists and creators over-assert something that feels like moral rights, then people aren't going to buy things. That work for hire enables a lot of people to do work because there are plenty of projects that it would be completely impossible to build if every single person who worked on any element of that project could assert forever integrity, credit, control over what happened to that product after it reaches the marketplace. Also, a key underpinning of the way our economy works is there's not a lot of room for do-overs. There's not a lot of room for changing your mind. You sell some rights in 1965, and then in 1975, it turns out those rights are worth a lot more. We are hesitant to go back and say, no, we can do that deal over again. If you sold Bitcoin for $8,000, it's not clear that anyone thinks it's okay to go back to that person and say, well, I didn't realize it was going to go to $50,000. I want my Bitcoin back. Sure, we make exceptions for things like fraud, for transactions that aren't done by consenting adults. But other than those, I think it makes sense that if an artist wants to sell something using the first use doctrine to someone else, they should be allowed to do that. And the person who buys it should be allowed to buy it. Do I think it's a good idea to cut up Damien Hirst paintings and sell them? Well, as an art project, there's a long history of doing things like that. The folks at Mischief are good at hype, but they haven't done anything particularly original. And so, even though I don't have to say whether or not I'm asserting my moral rights, I'm not. It's okay with me if someone buys my book, cuts it up, and turns it into some sandals. I don't make visual art, and I'm just fine bringing my ideas to the world under the current copyright regime. The real issue for me is this. Disney and other copyright holders the Gershwin estate, for example, have argued long and hard that copyright must be extended, that it must be strengthened, that we need to figure out ways to keep people away from whatever it is that they own, which makes sense if there's a shortage. If there's a shortage of people who want to work in Hollywood or in book publishing or in the record business, if there's a shortage of new music coming out, then yes, we must strengthen protections for the artists so that the culture, all of us, get the benefit of more people creating. But if there isn't a shortage, if there are plenty of people making plenty of good work, then the culture demands we build an infrastructure where it can be shared and understood. It turns out that there are tons of books, The Great Gatsby, that just went in to the public domain in the United States this year. That's absurd. It's absurd that the heirs, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren of F. Scott Fitzgerald were getting royalty payments all of these years later. Nobody who made the decisions to write or publish The Great Gatsby 
is still alive. There was no upside in creating extensions to copyright. And until there's a shortage for our culture of ideas worth celebrating and sharing and learning from, then I think we need to err on the side of how do we build structures and regimes where these things can spread and where people can enjoy them. Thanks for letting me rant. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.